Well, hey, Center Church family, I could not be more excited to pastor with partner or to partner with Pastor Billy Judge in the planting of Steel City Church. Billy's a good friend of mine. He has a similar heartbeat that I have and that our church has. He wants to see lives changed by the gospel in the east end of Pittsburgh and at the University of Pittsburgh, and that is exactly what we want to see God do here in Charlottesville and at the University of Virginia. But can you imagine moving your family or being a member of this team that is moving to Pittsburgh in the midst of all this chaos that they're currently in? So what I want us to do is I don't want to just get behind them financially, though, though we are doing that. I want to get behind them in prayer. So wherever you are, would you just join me as I'm going to voice a prayer on our behalf for Billy and for his team as they get ready to move their lives for the sake of the gospel to the east end of Pittsburgh. So would you just bow your heads and pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we're, thank- we're thankful that you came after us, and we're thankful that once we're in your family, you send us after others. And Lord, I pray for Pastor Billy and his family. I pray for all those that are moving to plant Steel City Church, that you'd be gracious to them and bless them and you'd make your face shine upon them, that your name, God, might be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. So give them all that they need, establish the work of their hands. Thank you that we get to be a partner with them in the advancement of the gospel. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, my name is Pastor Josh Miller, and I'm so excited that you're here. If you're a guest, I want to give you a special shout out. Just below this live stream, there's a connect card. I'd love for you to do me a favor. Fill that card out. Give us a little bit of information so that we can follow up with you this week and see a little bit more, learn about your story, see if there's words we can be praying for you or serving you in this unique season that we are all in. But I'll go ahead and tell you right from the start that we are talking about something today that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, all right? I'll just lead off with that because we are going to be talking about the biblical concept of obedience, the biblical concept of obedience. And be honest, what was your guttural reaction when I said that? It probably wasn't, yes, a sermon on obedience, right? Depending on your background, you might be very uncomfortable with that word. Maybe it doesn't bother you as much. But in my experience, I've, I've learned that obedience is one of the most important concepts in the Bible, but it's also one of the most misunderstood concepts in the Bible. And oftentimes, people fall into one of two errors when it comes to obedience. The first error I'll call obedience is everything. Obedience is everything. And we, we make this mistake when we think that God's love for us is determined by how well we obey Him. So if we had a good week, if we didn't kick the cat or say any swear words in traffic, if we spent time with God in the morning every day, we feel close to God and we feel like raising our hands in worship like God loves us. But that's actually not true. The Bible says that God's love for us is unconditional based on the work of Jesus, not based on our work. And so that actually misses the grace of God and the freedom that we have in Christ. When we believe obedience is everything, we sort of miss the grace of God. The second mistake that I see people make is usually in response to that first mistake, and I'll call this mistake, obedience is nothing. Obedience is nothing. And that's the idea that because God's love for us is based on grace, it's based on the work of Jesus and not on what we do, then obedience doesn't really matter, that it doesn't really matter how we live, that sin isn't that serious, that we don't need to work very hard at growing to be more like Christ. But unfortunately, that mistake misses the holiness of God, and it misunderstands the responsibility that we have as followers of Jesus. So those are two mistakes that it's easy to make. But when you look at what the Bible has to say about obedience, it doesn't say either of those things. It doesn't say obedience is everything, and it doesn't say obedience is nothing. The Bible says that obedience is the best indicator of spiritual maturity. 
You see, the Bible teaches that obedience is synonymous with spiritual maturity. So if you ask the question, what defines spiritual maturity, the Bible's answer from beginning to end would be obedience. Or to put it another way, maturity isn't determined by how well you know God's Word. It's determined by how well you obey God's Word. Obedience or maturity isn't defined by how well you know God's Word, how many answers to Bible trivia you might know, or how many church activities you attend, but it's determined by how well you obey God's Word. And if you're anything like me, that that makes you a little uncomfortable, right? Yikes, right? Because all of us have areas of our life where we know we should be doing one thing, but we're not doing it. You see, we all have gaps in our lives, areas where what we should be doing and what we're actually doing do not match up. Well, if you can relate with that experience, if there are some gaps in your life, and I think today is going to be really helpful for you, because today we're going to learn three characteristics of biblical obedience. We're going to learn three characteristics of biblical obedience, and by understanding these characteristics, it's going to help you and me take steps forward in our faith. And if you're watching and you're not sure what you believe about Christianity, I think this is going to be really helpful for you, because I think it's going to dispel some some notions that you might have had about Christianity and instead help you understand what the Bible means when it talks about obedience, okay? So three characteristics of biblical obedience, and those are the motivation of obedience, the expectation of obedience, and the result of obedience. The motivation, the expectation, and the result. So if you have a Bible, you can type to or turn to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. That is where we are going to be this morning, and we'll jump right in with number one. So if you're a note taker, here it is, the motivation of obedience. The motivation of obedience, and this comes right out of verse 12. Look at it with me. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So an important question to begin with when we ask about obedience is what should motivate your obedience? What should motivate me to obey? And as I considered that question, I, I kind of realized that there may be a three or four real common motivators towards obedience in our society. Let me know if some of these resonate with you. The, the first kind of common motivation out there is to be a good person. So I obey a a set of rules, whether that's from God or my family or society, because I want to be a good person and I want to be perceived as a good person. So that's the first one. Another one that came to mind was I obey to avoid punishment. So I don't want to experience the negative consequences of disobeying or breaking the rules, whether that's, you know, being sent to the principal's office or getting a speeding ticket. So I obey to avoid negative consequences. And then the final motivation, I think, is to be rewarded, right? To be rewarded. We say, hey, I obey, I keep the rules because I want to be blessed, whether that's by God or by my family or by my company or society. I want to be blessed, so I obey to be rewarded for my obedience. And the common thread in all of those motivations is self. The common motivation is self. So, you know, when you say, I want to be a a good person, it's, I want to be perceived as a good person. I want to avoid the negative consequences of disobedience, or I want to be rewarded for obeying. But see, when you look at the Bible, it's very different. You see, biblical obedience is motivated by God rather than self. Biblical obedience is always motivated by God rather than self. So if you're obeying in a biblical sense, you're not doing it 
because you want to be rewarded or you want to be perceived as a good person, but you're doing it in response to who God is. And this verse in particular shows us two aspects about God that lead us to obedience, the grace of God and the fear of God, the grace of God and the fear of God. So let's start with number one, the grace of God. Do you see that word therefore at the beginning of verse 12, that, that word therefore? That's a very important word because that word ties this call to obedience back with what Paul had talked about in verses three through eight. In verses three through eight, Paul talked about the work of Christ, how Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. That Jesus left heaven, he came to earth, and he suffered so that you could be forgiven and so that you could become a child of God. And as a result of what Jesus did, no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, you can have a fresh start. That is what Paul was saying in verses 3 through 8. Well, the question is, why did God do that? Why did God send Jesus to the world to accomplish that feat? Was it because God was lonely, right? Was he lonely and he wanted us into his family? Well, no, the, the scriptures tell us that God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he has always experienced perfect community within himself. Well, did, did God have a need of some sort that we could fulfill? And so God sent Jesus because he needed something from us. Well, no, the scriptures say that God is all sufficient. I love what Psalm 50 verse 12 says. God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. So there's nothing that God needed from us. So was it because we were really upstanding, that we had a lot of potential, and God just needed to send Jesus to get us over the line and get us on his team? Again, no. Ephesians chapter 2 says that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins before God saved us. So, so why did God send Jesus to die for our sins? Why did he do that. It's such a massive undertaking. It was such an incredible sacrifice. What motivated God to give up his one and only son for you? And the simple answer is this. God is gracious. He's kind. He is overflowing in steadfast love. It is simply in God's nature to be gracious to unworthy people. So to summarize, why does God love you? Because he loves you. Why does God love you? Simply because he does. That's it. And it's a little bit hard for us to grasp that concept because we're used to thinking of love as a responsive thing. What do I mean by that? Well, we tend to think of love being in response to something lovely, right? So I love this house because it's beautiful. I love the mountains because they're so breathtaking. I love my spouse because of her personality or character or loyalty or God, whatever it is. We tend to think of love as being responsive to something. But you see, God's love isn't responsive. God's love is expressive. God's love is an expression of who he is, not a response to who you are. God's love and grace is an expression of who he is, not a response to who you are. And that's really good news. Because if God's love for you is based on some attribute about you, you could lose it, right? What if you stopped being that thing? What if you failed one week to be that thing that made God love you? You would be in a lot of trouble. But because God's love is based on his character and because his character never changes, we're secure. We don't have to worry about failing God's love test because his love is not in response to us. His love is an expression of who he is. So verses three through eight 
tell us that God loves you and God sent Jesus to die for you simply because he is gracious, not because he needs anything from you, not because you owe him something, but because of who he is. And Paul starts verse 12 with the word therefore to say in response to that, you should obey, not because you're trying to earn God's love, but because God has already given you his love. So we don't obey to try to earn our salvation, but we obey because God has achieved our salvation in Christ. So if you are a Christian, the first motivation in your life towards obedience is the grace of God, that when you could do nothing for yourself, God interceded, and at great cost to his son, he gave you a new start and a new name and a new identity as a son of the living God. So that's the first motivation. But it's not the only motivation mentioned in this verse. There's actually a second one. We should be motivated by the grace of God, but we should also be motivated by the fear of God. Motivation number two is the fear of God. Look back at verse 12. It says this, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice that Paul doesn't say work for your salvation, but he says work out your salvation. And the Greek word that he uses there means to bring something to completion. So Paul isn't referring to your, your being made right with God, but he's referring to your process of spiritual growth, what people often call sanctification. So this doesn't mean that you obey in order to be saved, but again, that, that, that would contradict everything Paul said in verses 3 through 8. What Paul is saying is, hey, now that you are working out your salvation, you're, you're working towards greater Christ-likeness, do it in the fear of of the Lord. Do it with fear and trembling. And the idea of fearing God makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? The idea of fearing God doesn't sit quite right with us, even though it's a thoroughly biblical concept. All throughout the scriptures, when someone is described as being righteous and holy and upstanding, they're described as fearing the Lord. 75 years ago, if you wanted to compliment your neighbor, you might say, that's a God-fearing man. Right? What you meant was that that man had integrity, that he was honest, that he was upstanding, that you could trust him and count on him. But today, we have a hard time thinking about the fear of God being a positive thing because we think of fear as being almost exclusively negative. So let me try to help you understand what Paul means here. What does he mean when he says you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, he means something like this. Work out your salvation with deep reverence. Or work out your salvation with a nervous and trembling anxiety to do what is right. To, to paraphrase one scholar, it means this. This is not the fear of a lost sinner before a holy judge, but the fear of a true child before the most loving of all fathers. Not a fear of what he might do to us, but a fear of the hurt that we might do to him through disobedience. So it's not the fear of what he might do to us, it's the fear of what we might do to him in disobedience. Think of it this way. Imagine that Tony Bennett, the head coach of the UVA men's basketball team, invited you to a private practice session at John Paul Jones Arena, and he was going to give you one-on-one -on -one coaching for an hour, right? Would, would you show up late to that practice, and would you be checking your phone the whole time and kind of slouching off? No way, right? You would show up early, you would be ready to go, and you would give 100% effort. Why? Because in a biblical sense, you have a healthy fear of Coach Bennett, right? You admire who he is, and you admire what he's accomplished, and so you would want to honor him with your work ethic in that practice. That is what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Work out your salvation with the healthy awareness of who God is and all that He has accomplished in the world and in your life, and let that motivate you towards greater and greater degrees of Christ-likeness. So biblically speaking, our obedience should be motivated by both the grace of God on one hand and the fear of God on the other. That's the first thing that we learn. Here's the second thing that we learn. We learn the expectation of obedience. Number two, the expectation of obedience. So when we think about Christian obedience, what should our expectation be? Is it going to be a grind or is it going to be a breeze? right? What should we expect? And what we all know is that proper expectations go a long way in helping you accomplish a goal. I learned this the hard way last year when I tried to install a 10 by 10 paver patio in my backyard. I got online, I looked it up, I thought, how hard could this be? Dig a foundation, pour in some sand, put on the pavers, boom, you're done. But for any of you that have ever hand dug a foundation, you know just how woefully uninformed I was. I mean, this thing almost ended me. We finished the project because I called in every favor I had. I had people coming to help me from like other churches, other countries. No, I'm just kidding. But basically anyone I could convince to come help me, I did, right? And, and we're digging this thing out and we're putting it on and I, I was spent. I this isn't a lie. I literally had to go to to physical therapy for three months after I put that patio in to recover from the process. What happened? I had horrible expectations. I was like, man, this is going to be easy. I'm going to knock it out in a weekend. Had I had proper expectations, I would have recruited more help. I would have rented some power equipment, right? And I would have given myself some more time. Here's what we know. Man, when it comes to accomplishing a task, expectations are really important. So what should you expect when you try to pursue obedience as a Christian? Well, two things. Number one, you should expect hard work. You should expect hard work. Everything worth doing requires hard work, right? Parenting is hard work. Marriage is hard work. Getting an education is hard work. Your career is hard work. Running a marathon is hard work. Everything meaningful in our lives takes hard work. So it shouldn't surprise us that our spiritual growth, which the Bible says is one of the most important things in our life, would require hard work. Look at verse 12. Paul says, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Greek word translated work out means to maintain constant energy and effort to finish a task. In antiquity, that word was used to refer to drawing precious metals out of a mine. So there's something precious in those hills, and you got to go down and dig it out, and you got to work hard to get it. So Paul wants us to understand that obedience requires hard work. And it's not just here that Paul makes that point. Man, just take for a second and consider some of the images that Paul uses to describe the life of a Christian other places in Scripture. He, he says that a Christian is like a focused soldier like a hardworking farmer, like an athlete in training, a diligent ambassador or a woman in labor. Now, what do each of those images have in common? Hard work for a worthy goal. Hard work for a worthy goal. The farmer wants to feed his family. The athlete wants to win the competition and the mother wants to have her child. So spiritual growth is a worthy goal, but it requires hard work. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that that's true. A healthy marriage is hard work. Godly parenting is hard work. Being a good neighbor is hard work. Man, being a witness in your office is hard work. Saying no to sin is hard work. Living in intentional Christian community is hard work. There is no question that growing as a Christian is hard. 
And honestly, that's sobering, and I think it should be. I think it should sober us and give us the right expectation as we approach this task. But I also think that it's good news for us. I think it's good news for us because here's what that, that means. If you find your marriage challenging, you didn't marry the wrong person. If you find parenting difficult, no need to despair. If you find it challenging to spend consistent time with God, you aren't hopelessly undisciplined. If you find spiritual growth challenging, you aren't weird or broken, you're a Christian. If you find spiritual growth challenging, you aren't weird or broken, you are a Christian. Greater obedience is a worthwhile pursuit in your life. It is the right response to all that Christ has done in our lives, but it is challenging, and Paul wants us to know it is going to be hard work. But the good news is it's not only God work, hard work, but we can also expect God's help. We can also expect God's help. That's the second expectation. Look at verse 13 with me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as you work out your salvation, God is at work within you. And if the power of God is at work in your life, then your life can change. If the power of God is at work in your life, then your life can change. Isn't it easy to think that there are some areas of our life that just will never change? It's just part of who we are. Like, I'll always be anxious or impatient or insecure or angry. I'll just always be that way. That is who I am. Or I'll never be able to overcome this sin. Or I'll never be able to share my faith. Why do we say things like that? Because we have evidence to draw that conclusion, right? We've tried to overcome that sin. We've tried to become more patient. We've tried to become less angry, and yet time after time, we have failed. So we just, we just assume it's part of who we are, and we're just going to have to live with it until the end. But friend, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. That is one of the major themes of the entire Bible. What you cannot accomplish on your own, you can accomplish through the power of God within you. In Genesis chapter 18, God appeared to a man named Abraham who was 100 years old. And he said, Abraham, this time next year, your wife is going to have a son. And then we're told that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was 90 years old and had already gone through menopause, which is pretty typical at 90, right? What God said was so ridiculous that when Sarah heard him, she laughed. She literally laughed in God's face because it was so ridiculous. Look, God, I've wanted a baby my whole life. I'm 90. That ship has sailed. I'm not going to have a baby. This is ridiculous. But I love how God responded to Sarah. He said this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And sure enough, the next year, Sarah gave birth to a son who you may have heard of named Isaac. And I want to pause for just a moment, and I want to ask you a pretty personal question. Where are you laughing at God? Where are you laughing at God? What area of your life is off the table? Where has cynicism taken over and you just say, I will always be this or I will never be that? What kingdom dream have you put in the grave that God wants to resurrect? 
Friends, every great work of God in history has three stages, impossible, improbable, accomplished. Those are the three stages of every great work of God in history, impossible, improbable, accomplished. When we think change is impossible, it's because we underestimate the power of God that is at work within us. I mean, the Bible says that God is omnipotent, which means he possesses all power, that he is infinitely power, powerful. But we often kind of pass over that. We don't know how to think about that. So let's drill down on that for just a second. God created the sun, right? Did you know that every second the sun produces the same energy as one trillion megaton bombs? Every second. Every second the sun produces enough energy to power the world, all of the civilizations of the world for 500,000 years. Every second. And the star is, and the sun is one of trillions of stars in the known universe. And it's only one of, it's like average sized. It's not even one of the big ones. God created the sun like you and I light a match. If that power is at work in your life, then there is nothing that cannot change. There is no stronghold that cannot be broken down. There is no chain that cannot be broken. There is no character flaw that cannot be reformed. You can be transformed because the power of Almighty God is at work within you. Friend, that is good news. That means that no matter how weak you feel, no matter how defeated you feel, no matter how insecure or hopeless you feel, you're not. Because the power of God is at work in you, and what is impossible with man is possible with God. So Paul wants us to be sobered by the fact that obedience is hard work, but he doesn't want us to stop there. He wants us to be encouraged by the fact that the power of God Almighty is at work in our lives, and so change is possible. That is the expectation of obedience, which brings us to the last thing that we learn, number three. The result of obedience. The result of obedience from verses 14 through 18. Starting in verse 14, Paul describes what will happen when we obey. The results of our obedience. And he tells us that when we obey, we shine like bright lights in a dark world. That when we obey, we shine like bright lights in a dark world. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul says, hey, your community is dark, but when you obey, when you become more and more like Christ, you shine like a lamp. You shine like a bright lamp in a dark room, and what does light do? Light helps people see clearly and find their way. That is what God wants you to be in our community, a person that helps your friends and family and classmates and coworkers see clearly, see their spiritual state clearly and find their way to the Lord. So how do we do that? Well, Paul gives us an individual way that we shine and a way that we shine together. Let's start with the individual way. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So this is a way that Paul tells us we can apply obedience, to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Well, what does grumbling mean? Well, it means complaining or murmuring. And I don't have to illustrate this for you because our world is full of murmuring and complaining. 
and grumbling. Our world is sometimes defined by grumbling. Your coworkers grumble about your company, right? Your classmates grumble about your professor. Parents grumble about their kids. Kids grumble about their parents. Parents grumble about their kids' teachers. Kids' teachers grumble about their kids' parents, right? Everyone grumbles about everyone. And this isn't just a problem out there. This is a problem right in here. I was convicted of that this week. On Thursday night, uh, we ordered takeout from a Mexican restaurant. And so you know how it is these days. You have to put on like a 17-layer hazmat suit to get takeout. And so I do the whole thing. I drive over there. I pick up the food. I come home. And I get home and I realize that they haven't given us the chips that we paid for. And what do I do? I just start grumbling. I'm like, I got to put my mask back on and I got to go back and get the chips and I got to disinfect my hands four times, you know? Like, and I'm just grumbling. As, as I'm driving to the Mexican restaurant, I just start to get really convicted. I'm like, I'm, this is all I'm doing right now. I'm an illustration of what not to do in the sermon, right? We just, grumbling is everywhere and grumbling is so easy to fall into. But when we grumble, we diminish our light. When we act and we, when, we, when our attitude is just like all the people that, that we work with and all the people we go to school with and all the people that we live around there, there's nothing that's different about us. There's no light in us. We are just like the darkness. And it's important to understand that grumbling is the opposite of rejoicing. Grumbling is the opposite of rejoicing. So, so much of the letter of Philippians is about rejoicing in Christ in the midst of hard circumstances, and grumbling is the opposite of it grumbling and rejoicing cannot exist together. One will drive out the other. Your grumbling will drive out your joy or your joy will drive out your grumbling. So how do we stop? How do we stop grumbling and how do we grow at being light in our community? Well, we have to actively call to mind the goodness of God. We have to actively cultivate gratitude in our lives. We have to think on all the incredible benefits that we have in the gospel and all the ways that God has provided for us and sustained us and blessed us in our lives. We have to cultivate gratitude because it is not a naturally occurring attribute, not in ourselves and not in our society. Now, that doesn't mean that we put on rose-colored glasses. It doesn't mean we put on a fake smile everywhere we go. It simply means that we interpret our hard circumstances through the lens of the gospel. In another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, he was talking to some friends of his who had lost loved ones. And they were asking him, Paul, how should we grieve as Christians? And this was his advice. He said, hey, I want you to grieve. I want you to weep. I want you to be sad. It is okay for Christians to be sad. It is okay for Christians to cry. It is okay for you to say, I'm having a really hard time feeling lonely and anxious and isolated during this quarantine. That is okay. Paul says it's okay to do all those things. He says, just don't do them without hope. He says, don't grieve like the world around you, but grieve like people who have a hope that transcends circumstances and that transcends this world. You see, when we are able to rejoice, even in the midst of really challenging circumstances, when we are defined by people of rejoicing rather than by being people of grumbling, people start to take notice. And they say, man, what is different about you that you're handling this so differently? What is different about you that you don't jump in with our gripe session at work or at school or in our neighborhood, but you are different? Tell me what makes you different, and we get to be lights in the world. That's how we do it individually. But how do we shine together? What does it mean to be a a group of people that shines together? Well, look at verse 16 with me. Paul says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, 
I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So in this verse, Paul links his suffering with their sacrifice. Paul calls himself a drink offering that is poured out on their sacrificial offering. Well, what does any of that mean? Well, in the ancient world, people would bring offerings, sacrificial offerings to pay for sins. And they would say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I'm offering this sacrifice to atone for my sin. And that was sort of the standard offering. But then every once in a while, people would add on to that a drink offering. And that was sort of a way to say, I'm going all in. I'm doubling down on this commitment in my life. I'm pouring my whole self out onto this thing. You never had a drink offering without a sacrificial offering. You following me? One led to the other. Well, what Paul is saying is that as he watches the Philippians live sacrificial, Christ-exalting lives, it makes him want to offer his life as a sacrifice as well. As he sees the sacrifice of their faith, it makes him want to pour out his life as a sacrifice as well. You see, this is about creating a culture of spiritual growth where your obedience motivates my obedience and my obedience motivates your obedience and we create a snowball, a snowball effect where we become a really bright light in our community because we are helping one another and encouraging one another and being motivated by one another's obedience. This happened to me earlier this year. So Jose Concepcion is one of our student leaders in our college ministry. And one day Jose texts me and he says, hey, Pastor Josh, I'm headed to grounds to do some evangelism. Do you want to come? I did not want to go. All right. It wasn't on my schedule. I didn't want to deal with parking on the corner. And I really didn't want to walk around and talk to 19 year olds about the gospel. Okay. Like straight up honesty. I didn't want to go. But when a 19 year old texts you and is like, Hey, pastor Josh, want to go share the gospel on grounds? Like, what do you say to that? Right? So I'm like, all right. You know, so like I clear my schedule and I drive over there and it was great. Like Jose and I went out, we had some really meaningful conversation with students. We prayed with students. It was a huge win. So what happened in that situation, Jose offered himself as a living sacrifice, and it made me want to do the same thing. You see how that works? When, when one of us offers our life, like the Philippians, as a Christ-exalting sacrifice, as we strive to obey, it motivates the other people in our community. And as we do this together, we're able to create a, a community that is distinct, that is bright, and that is compelling. My prayer is that we would be a church full of people who are not perfect, but full of people who are pursuing Christ-likeness together. Because when we do that, amazing things can happen. It reminds me of a missionary named Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon actually grew up here in Albemarle County, and in 1871, she set sail for China, where she served as a missionary for the rest of her life. And at first, the, the Chinese people rejected her. She was a Westerner. They, they didn't understand who she was. But over time, through hospitality and godliness, she won over some of the, the people who lived in her community. And at the end of her life, she had seen some Chinese come to faith in Christ, and she had trained some local leaders, and there was a little gospel movement happening in the city where she was. But the greatest impact of Lottie's life was not in that city in China, but it was with churches back in North America. You see, Lottie was an incredible communicator. She was one of the first women in the South to gain a master's degree, and she used that education to write letters, hundreds of letters over her lifetime back to churches in North America. And she called the churches in North America to care about the people of China and to give money and to send people to take the gospel to the millions of people at that time in China who had never heard Jesus's name. 
And in response, churches in North America started giving every Christmas a Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And the very first time it was collected was in 1888, and about $3,000 was collected. Well, since 1888, that offering has been taken up every single year in North America, and to date, $1.5 billion has been given in Lottie's name to the cause of world missions. Thousands and thousands of people have given money, and hundreds and hundreds of people have given their lives to the mission field because of Lottie Moon. And friends, it wasn't the rhetoric of her letters that galvanized the North American church. It was the rhetoric of her life. It wasn't the rhetoric of her writing. It was the rhetoric of her obedience. You see, Lottie Moon was a bright light. She was such a bright light that even from China, she lit up the churches of North America and said, let's do this together. Let my obedience motivate your obedience. And the churches responded. Friends, that is what God still does today. When you and I commit ourselves and say, Lord, I need your power at work within me. I need your help, but I'm going for this. In response to what Jesus has done for me, I want to pursue holiness and I want to pursue obedience. You know what happens? God multiplies that effect. And he uses your obedience to motivate the obedience of your friends and a fellow uh, members of our church and a fellow people in our community. And all of a sudden, we become an extremely bright light, not only in our community, but all around the world. So my prayer is that we as a church will be full of people like Lottie Moon, who would move people to action, not necessarily through the rhetoric of our words, but through the rhetoric of our lives. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to earth, that you lived a perfect life so that we could be forgiven. And thank you for the privilege of responding to your work in obedience. God, I pray for every person that is watching right now. I pray that they wouldn't be overwhelmed, that they wouldn't feel guilt or shame, but that they would feel challenged and empowered, challenged to pursue Christ's likeness because that glorifies you and it allows them to shine like a light in the world, but also empowered knowing that they are not working for their salvation, but they are working from their salvation. And that the power of Almighty God, your power, Lord, is at work within them. So God, make us a group of people that pursues godliness out of response to your grace and for the sake of the world. We love you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.